Is that Dean's football, Adrian? It did. Touchdown. This morning's scripture for the 15th chapter of Romans, the first seven verses. We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good, to build him up. For Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. For whatever was written in the former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. Let us pray. Father God, Lord, we thank you for these passages in Romans. We thank you, Father, that your spirit impressed upon Paul this idea and notion of unity in the church. And Father, we pray that you would impress it upon our hearts and minds as we go forward this morning and study your scriptures. And Father, we know that we are fruitless when it comes to reading your word without the inspiration of your spirit within our hearts. And Father, I pray that the words that I speak be not of myself, but be glorifying and from you to you. There it is in Christ's name we pray. Amen. So after a couple weeks of taking off of Romans for the Easter celebration. We are back in, digging back in with a new chapter this morning. We've made it all the way to chapter 15, which means we have a total of two chapters left in this glorious, wonderful book. And I hope that you all have enjoyed the adventure as much as I have, because it's, it's been truly just that, an, an adventure. Essentially, we are in the middle of Paul's farewell or benediction of sorts to the church at Rome. And we've kind of been in the middle of that for some time. As part of the farewell bed, he wants to make sure that the church in Rome does not become divisive. Divisive. He's probably heard something along these lines. I'm quite certain he has because he spends a great deal of time dealing with this topic. And so we are back on this topic this morning. But unfortunately, we are not unlike the church in Rome. And I use the term church small c, the church throughout the United States and all over the world. We live in a very divisive time and period in our history as a church. We live in a very polarizing environment as a country, perhaps none like I've ever seen in my 51 years of life. We are extremely divided in our nature, in our nation, and unfortunately, that flows over into the church, and that is a sad thing to witness. Every word that we say or we hear said is analyzed critically. Because what we're trying to do when those words are analyzed is we want to put them in this camp and we want to put them in that camp. And if they're in that camp, then we don't like them because we're in that camp. 
That's the reality of the world in which we live now. And it is a sad, sad reality. Over the past few years, the issues have become many. And the rhetoric around those issues has become toxic. Some issues are easier. Some issues should be easier, let me say that. Some issues should be easier for the church than what they are. The issues that the Bible speaks on are no-brainers. Should be easy, but we've let the world creep in and tell us how to interpret God's Word. So nonetheless, what the Bible has spoken clearly to and on and about, we've allowed to become divisive. Shouldn't be the case. But the more difficult issues, or what should be the more difficult issues, are the gray areas that the Bible doesn't address. Mask? No mask. Vaccine? No vaccine. And we chuckle. But folks, those are explosive topics. And those are topics that have invaded the church and separated and divided the church along with a litany of others. Paul warns us not to allow that to happen. And again, I go back, as I've said as we started this in chapters 13 and 14. We're not talking about sin, all right? When it's sin, we see it, we push it away, we don't invite it and make it a part of who we are as a church. We reject that sin. Sin is divisive, it should be and always will be in God's church. It's these non-essential matters. The things that really don't make a difference in God's kingdom. Sin makes a huge difference in his kingdom. Things like what you eat and what you drink. And that's the issue that we were dealing with here in this passage and we've been dealing with for several weeks in chapters 13, 14, and now into 15. We divide over many many things that are not essential as I said in the praises and prayer requests Brady and I got to go to together for the gospel T4G started in 2006 and it's happened every other year after that and it's the the main goal is for pastors and church leaders to gather together to worship together to hear a lot of wonderful messages take those messages and share the gospel back with their own church families But this was the last one. It ended. And part of what's brought that to an end are disagreements. Many of those disagreements over non-essential things. Things that we should be able to put aside and join together for the sake of the gospel. But unfortunately, it just wasn't able to happen. But through all of this, It is God's desire for the church to be united. It is his goal, and that goal is clearly stated throughout the Bible, and we're going to look at some of those and traverse a few of those. Psalm 133, a song of a sense of David. Behold how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. It is like the precious oil on the head, running down the beard, on the beard of Aaron, running down on the collar of his robes. It is like the dew of Hermon, 
which falls on the mountains of Zion. For there the Lord has commanded the blessing and live forevermore. The unity of brothers worshiping together is like a precious oil that's applied on one's head and the scent that emanates is beautiful and runs down. It is like fresh morning dew. Jeremiah 32, 38, 39. And they shall be my people and I will be their God. And I will give them one heart and one way that they may fear me forever for their own good and the good of their children after them. One heart, one way, in unity, bound together by the Spirit. Ezekiel 37. Then the word of the Lord came to me. Son of man, take a stick and ride on it. For Judah and the people of Israel associated with it, then take another stick and ride on it. For Joseph, the stick of Ephraim, and the house of Israel associated with him. And join them together, join them one to another into one stick, that they may become one in your hand. So Ezekiel gives us an object lesson in this passage from the words and heart of God. God is telling him to unite Israel after the division of Israel. One stick we had Judah, which was the southern kingdom, and the other stick we had Ephraim, which was the northern kingdom. And God is telling them to join them together and be united as one kingdom of God. This idea and desire for unity and oneness is not just expressed in the Old Testament, but it is a theme that runs throughout the Bible in and through the New Testament as well. John chapter 10, verses 14 through 16, the words of Christ. I am the good shepherd and I know my own and my own know me. Just as the Father knows me, I know the Father and I lay down my life for the sheep. And I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock, one shepherd. Jesus was saying, I've got other people. Yes, I've got the Jews, but I've got other people. I've got the Gentiles, us. We're out there. And they hear my voice, and they know my voice, and I want to bring them together, and I want to merge them, and they all become one people, my people, in unity. God is gathering for himself a people from every tribe, nation, and language. And those people are to become one with the one true shepherd. We see a very beautiful passage in Christ's high priestly prayer, John 17. Christ is praying to the Father, and I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I'm coming to you, Holy Father. Keep them in your name, which you you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. And he goes on in verse 21, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe you have sent me. The very words of our Savior. Keep them, Lord, that they may be one as I am one with you and you and me and they in me. Ephesians 
eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. So the scriptures, and I've just gone through a few. We could be here for a very long time if I put that word unity in Logos and did the search. But the scriptures demonstrate that there is a desire from God the Father that runs through God the Son that ends up in God the Spirit of unification of believers. The unity is made possible because we all share the same spirit. So what is dwell or who dwells within us is the same from one believer to the next. We share the unity of the spirit of Almighty God in us. That is what makes it possible. The Holy Spirit is the avenue in which believers can become one. Yet here we stand. Churches that are divided all over this nation, splitting, breaking off. Why do these divisions exist? Why is it so common? Jude. These are grumblers, malcontents. Following their own sinful desires, they are loud-mouthed boasters showing favoritism to gain advantage. So we have a few adjectives there, but now we jump in to the middle of it coming up. But you must remember, beloved, the predictions of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. They said to you that in the last time there will be scoffers following their own ungodly passions. It is these who cause division, worldly people, Devoid of who? The Spirit. The Spirit of God is a unifying person when it comes to believers. Division comes from those who are are either devoid, meaning they're not Christian, or we've held on to that old man that so easily ensnares us. So, two reasons. Either they're unbelievers and they come in the church and they portray that they're believers and they cause divisions within the church. Or number two, they're not fully submitting themselves to the Spirit of God. That's what causes divisions among Christians. They arise from that wretched old man that we studied over a year ago of Romans 7. That, oh, wretched man that I am, who will set me free from this body of death? Division comes when we hold on to that old sinful nature and it rears its ugly head in our lives. And I do want to make a distinction between disagreements and divisions. It's a big distinction. It's it's a huge distinction. Disagreements are okay. Matter of fact, sometimes disagreements are healthy because they cause us to think thoughts that aren't in our minds, look at problems from other directions than we ordinarily would. But what can happen if we continue to cling on that old sinful nature is we can allow the disagreement to slowly and surely become a division, and that's not what God wants. Divisions happen because we are 
devoid of the Spirit and not allowing the Spirit to have His work in our hearts. But as I pointed out at the beginning of this, and as I'll point it out now, sometimes the Bible calls us to divide. And that division is along the lines of what damage is being done to the gospel. I think that was the litmus test that I gave you a few weeks ago. At what point do we stop? At what point do we push back? And I think the proper question is, does it do damage to the faith that God gives us or to the gospel? If it does, then we don't choose unity over standing up and protecting the gospel and God's word. So it's, it's a very critical line that we must all draw in our hearts. But we need to look at it objectively and honestly most of all. Very honestly. In this morning's passage, Paul was again warning us to guard against frivolous divisions over non-essential matters. We need to go back and get the proper context before we jump into the crux of this passage. Way back in chapter 13, we're talking about the government and he was telling us to submit and give respect and honor and to love everyone. That was a command that we are to love everyone. And so he started that theme in chapter 13 and it works its way all the way through chapter 13 that we're to love our brothers. And we spent Sundays looking at what that looked like and what that meant. And then he comes on into 14 and he starts talking about a group, a group of people that are strong and a group of people that are weak. And the the weak people believe that it was wrong to eat meat sacrificed to idols. They believe that it was wrong to drink wine that wasn't kosher. The strong people believe that we can eat whatever we want. We can drink whatever we want. Not get drunk, but drink whatever we want. We spent a lot of time looking at that, and we're still on that sort of theme right now. But the underlying structure, the underlying foundation of this is love. Always the underlying foundation of this is love, as we'll see as we go through this. So it was the strong that believed that all things were beautiful and precious and, and edible. Because God created and gave them to us. But it was the weaker brother or sister that believed they needed to abstain. Now we come to chapter 15. We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not please ourselves. So Paul moves, interestingly enough, from 14 to 15. I'm not really sure that the chapters should have broke where they broke them. I think it was 1200 A.D. that the chapters came about. So it was way past the first century when they translated the Bible that they put them in chapters. I don't necessarily think this is proper, but who am I to say? We, he goes from first person to or from third person to first person, do we are strong, who are strong, have an obligation. So Paul is one of the, but believes that all things are lawful for me to eat and drink. He's one of those guys. 
And he says, we who are strong, he believed they could eat bacon. And that was going to be just fine. But he tells us that there's something about this, that we who are strong have an obligation or a duty, an obligation or a duty to the weaker Christians. Oh, how our Christian faith and the church has changed throughout history. And it, it, it's a lot what we're looking at in, in our Bible studies on Sunday night. Because we have been individuals so long, we tend to view our faith as my faith. And what I do ain't none of y'all's business. If I can eat and I can drink, I'm going to eat and drink. And as I've said so many times, this is the greatest country that has ever existed in my mind. I love this country. I am very patriotic. But that's the mentality that has infiltrated the church. These are my rights. I'm going to exercise them. You all can do whatever you want. That mentality has come into the church and infiltrated the church to where it's my faith, my business. The church wasn't meant to be that way. God didn't create the church that way. We're in this together. We support each other. We pull each other up when we're down. That's what being a Christian is. Here we see Paul telling us, we who believe that we can eat bacon have an obligation to those who believe that you can eat bacon. You have a duty or an obligation to bear with the failings of those who are weak. We are to be considerate of each other and our views with respect to how we glorify and serve God. Remember that we saw in chapter 14 that both groups of people were eating or abstaining from eating to the glory of God. That was their desire. It wasn't a desire for any other reason or for any other thing but to glorify God. So Paul is instructing us to be considerate and understanding of each other. Two words that I don't hear anymore and is not in the lexicon of any cable news network that I ever see. Consider it. Understanding. No. We're going to beat down ridicule and throw under the bus whoever it is for whatever they say. And unfortunately, that notion spills over into God's church. So we have an obligation or a duty. And because of that obligation or duty, we are not to please ourselves. We are not to please ourselves. Now I want to hover over that notion or perhaps that word. We'll try it again, see if it works any better. Please ourselves. That wasn't even close. (laughs) I did not underline ESV on this. So this idea or notion of pleasing ourselves, what, what exactly does that mean? 
does that mean we are to refuse to do anything that brings us joy or brings us pleasure? It's not what it means. In fact, by doing what Paul is asking us doing to do, I will submit to you will bring you a great deal of joy and a great deal of pleasure. There is great pleasure and joy to be had in assisting others in their walk with Jesus Christ. Far more joy and pleasure to be had in assisting others in their walk with Jesus Christ than there is in eating bacon, just because you can. Or drinking wine, just because you can. By not pleasing ourselves... What Paul is saying here is we should refrain from doing or saying things that our weaker brothers and sisters in Christ may object to. And we talked about that. We talked about teetotalers, right? And how I said, I'm I'm not a teetotaler. I'm an anti-inebriation. That's sin. But there are those who grew up in an environment that was very bad and they were exposed to alcoholism and they were exposed to all the damage that being drunk could do to a family and everything else. And they are teetotalers and they they cannot understand in their mind how you can partake in an alcoholic drink and serve Christ. That's fine. That's fine. So what do we do? Do we drink to them? No. No, Paul's saying, you don't please yourself. You abstain from doing something to help them. You sacrifice in order that you may be encouraging to them. Even though you have the right. Even though you have the Christian liberty to eat whatever you want, drink whatever you want, you don't do it just because God has given you that right if it's going to cause harm or damage to your brother or sister in Christ. You don't like the color of the curtains. We don't have any curtains, do we? Who cares? You suck it up. If that's going to be a problem, you deal with it. You don't cause strife and division over those silly type of issues. You believe you should wear a mask. You don't believe you should wear a mask. Who cares? It's a mask. Verse 2. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up. So we're refraining from pleasing ourselves. And alternatively, we are pleasing our neighbor. How counterculture is that? I'm not a people pleaser. I'm worried about this guy. It's not the church. It's not a kingdom mentality or a kingdom idea. It's a man's idea, a worldly idea. We give up and help them so that it is for their good and we build them up. And it is very fulfilling, much more fulfilling than doing whatever it is you want to do or whatever you have the permission to do. Chapter 15 clearly shows us and demonstrates to us that this faith is not our own. 
That because we share the same spirit, we share each other, we share in each other's burdens. We're sorrow when other we're sorrowful when others are sorrowful. We celebrate when others celebrate. We help each other when someone's in sin and need help to get out. We do it out of love, not out of a desire to talk or gossip or make them feel condemned. We are to love each other as Christ loves us. And we are to sacrifice for the good of each other. It's what I've said so many times. Because we are corporate, we pull each other to make sure that whenever that end comes, we're going to make it across the line. Because that's all that matters. And sometimes we need the help of each other to get there. I will be the first to admit, I'm not strong enough to get there. I'll never get there on my own. We mourn when they mourn. And we celebrate when they celebrate. Verse 3, for Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. So Paul tells us not to worry about pleasing ourselves or not to be focused on pleasing ourselves in the times that we can exercise Christian liberty. If a brother or sister may object to our actions. Now here in verse 3, he gives us an example, and that example is Christ. Interestingly enough, this is a quote from Psalm 69.9. had a lot of difficulty trying to get through this. It's a little obscure. For Christ did not please himself, but as it was written, Psalm 69.9, actually King David wrote this to God the Father. So what you're going to have to do is see that who was the son of David? Jesus. So it gets attributed, like so many things, it gets, attributed, it gets attributed to Christ. So actually what we have here is Christ telling the Father, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. That's how this works. It's not easy to see. The phrase is a little unwieldy. A reproach is a, a negative opinion or animosity held by someone about or against someone else so what's really being said here is jesus saying all the animosity that mankind had on you god is being taken out on me the son i suffered it i suffered it said why would people have animosity people have all kind of animosity toward god that's just the nature of unbelievers they see god as some ogre that keeps them from enjoying life as they want to enjoy it and so they developed an animosity a hatred toward god and that was wrought out on the son and so that's our example Jesus didn't have to take that. He had the power, he had the liberty not to sacrifice. Even when he was facing the cross, right? I can call down legions of angels at this very moment. But again, that's not the good old American mentality, is it? We'd be calling down him angels. Sacrifice. For each other. 
that is undergirded by love. I again included verse 3, and there's a reason I included verse 3. It's that first word. For, For Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. So last week, Easter Sunday, we talked about that word for. What word can I stick in there? Most all the time. Because. Because. So we shouldn't please ourselves, but we should please others. Why? Because Christ didn't please himself. He pleased others and worried about the faith of others. And because whatever was written in the former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the Scriptures, we might have hope. So we have Christ is an example, and here we have another example. We have the example of God's Word. Because we have the Scriptures. What in the world do the scriptures have to do with this not pleasing ourselves, but pleasing others? Not partaking in Christian liberty. Paul tells us that the scriptures do two things here. They instruct us so that we might have, what? Hope. They instruct us so that we might have hope. Now what about this endurance and encouragement that we see here? Endurance and encouragement, encouragement from the scriptures, I think that's incredibly important, are vehicles that God uses to bring us hope. Endurance and encouragement from the scriptures are vehicles that God uses to bring us hope. I would even go so far that the scriptures also give us endurance. Those are both vehicles that's used to get to that final word. So why is Paul speaking of endurance here? What does endurance have to do with all this? When you give up something, when you sacrifice something for someone over a period of time, it can wear you down. It can beat you down. It can be burdensome. It can be tiresome. But we have to endure to the end, all the way to the very end. We need endurance and we need encouragement or we lose what? Hope. We lose hope. And we know that, right? I mean, that's clear to all of us. If we get tired and quit, we have no hope. If we become discouraged, then hope fades. If we are wore down and discouraged, Paul is telling us that it's likely because we're not studying God's Word. If we're wore down and discouraged and we see hope getting smaller, it's very likely that we're not studying His word, because His word has a supernatural way of encouraging us and giving us endurance that will lead to hope, that will get us to the very end. And if we're studying His word, 
then we're going to recognize and always be reminded of the sacrifice that Christ made for us. And additionally, that hope that we have will be strong. And I want to clarify on the word hope. Too often times when we see the word hope, we tend to attach a meaning to it that calls into question the likeliness of the outcome. Okay? I hope I win the lottery. Likelihood's not going to be very good. Right? I hope that it doesn't rain today. From what I'm understanding, the likelihood of that's not very good as well. It's not the hope that we're talking about here. Okay? It's not a hope that calls into question the likelihood of something happening or not happening. It's an eager expectation of what's going to happen. When you plan a vacation, and you're excited about that, and then the middle of February just got you beat down, you look forward in eager expectation of the hope of going on vacation. It's the same thing. We look at eternity, we look at eternity with an eager expectation. It's there, and I'm going to get there, and I'm not going to be burdened with the things of this world any longer. It's not a question of whether or not it exists or doesn't exist. It's it's designed to show us and demonstrate us the eager expectation of what's coming in the future. I think it's an important distinction that we need to make. It's exactly what Paul is referencing here. Hope means so much in our Christian walk. If we continue to sacrifice without encouragement, without perseverance and dedication, then that hope seems to diminish. But it is in God's word that he gives us perseverance, encouragement, and dedication by showing us and demonstrating to us that hope and how beautiful it is. Giving up or sacrificing something for each other is nothing when looked at and examined in the backdrop of the eternal joy and satisfaction we will have in Christ. And here we have, may the God of endurance and encouragement, He is the God of endurance and encouragement. That's what He does for us when we sacrifice. Grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accordance with Christ Jesus. Paul actually begins to pray here. This is a prayer. So he goes from writing to them to praying for them in a benediction of sorts. God is the God of endurance and encouragement. We sacrifice, he supplies the endurance and encouragement to build up that hope. And he does that through his word. Because the endurance and encouragement he gives us in our word and that produces hope, we can live with, in harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus. That together, and he continues with the prayer, that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. This gives us the goal of unity. It's why God wants us to be united so that we can glorify Him as one. With one voice, we may glorify God. It's, it's a reciprocal relationship. 
as Piper likes to talk about so many times, when we glorify God, then he in turn injects us or injects into our lives joy, endurance, perseverance, and hope, and we continue to do it and we continue to get it back. It is a reciprocal relationship. When we make much of Jesus, then he fills us with satisfaction and joy. When we sacrifice to make much of Jesus, then he fills us with satisfaction and joy. And that sacrificing brings pleasure and joy that far outweighs any joy that we can get by exercising our Christian liberty, whatever that may look like. Finally, therefore welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. Welcome one another as Christ welcomed you. Again, Christ being our example. He sacrificed for us, and we should sacrifice for each other. We should be willing to do that for each other. And when we do that, we glorify God. In closing, I want to say that it is my prayer that instead of being on the left or the right or wherever you may be socially, that you be in his word. I am a Christian, and my citizenship in heaven should be the number one thing in my life and yours. What's happening out there? In the overall scheme of things, doesn't matter, folks. Yeah, there's a lot of bad things going on, a lot of ungodly things going on. But this relationship is what matters more than anything. I got news for you. Jesus Christ is not coming back for the United States of America. He's coming back for his church. And how he finds his church will tell us how we've dealt with it as Christians. And that's the beauty and that's what I ask that we unite and not divide over things that are meaningless and nominal and at the end of the day matter nothing. That we give up and we sacrifice so that we may be one people serving one shepherd and glorifying him at all times. Amen? Let us pray. Most gracious God, Lord, we thank you for the wisdom of your word. How I stand in awe and am overwhelmed at the wisdom that you have. And I can just understand so very little of it, Lord. And Father, we pray as... Christians, that we look at the church as a corporate entity, that we're all in this together, and that it is your desire that we be one with each other as you and Christ are one, that we will be with you. We all share the same spirit. Father, we pray that you would give us and continue to give us endurance you would continue to give us encouragement so that our hope would remain at the foremost in our minds. And we know that whatever sacrifice we make now is nothing compared to the joy that we will receive in eternity with you, the eternal blessings that come from that. Not only are they eternal, but the the temporal blessings of the here and now of being able to help another brother and sister, to be able to build them up, to be able to watch them grow in you. Father, we pray that you would put that to work in our lives, that your spirit would remind us whenever we're tempted 
to make divisive issues a thing in our lives, Lord, that we would not, that we would put it aside and know that it is glorifying unto you, that we, whether we're strong or whether we're weak, that we seek unity over division and that you are glorified in that. For it's in Christ's precious name we pray. Amen. It's all rise. I actually threw a, another song at the end.